0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on the United States, Asia, the Pacific, and China. And with us, as always, is our great co host, Misha Oslin, fellow at the Hoover Institution. Misha, say hello to everybody.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: (laughs) And I'm uh, John Yu, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor at the University of California at Berkeley. So, Misha, you want to introduce our fabulous guest?
1: Don, we do have a fabulous guest today. We are actually, and we are we are crossing time zones. We are the Pacific Century, and today we've actually crossed the Pacific. We are welcoming Dominic Ziegler, Dom, to his friends, who is the economist, senior Asia correspondent, and the Banyan columnist. Any of you who read The Economist have been reading Dominic for years, in fact, since 1986 when he joined the newspaper as a financial reporter. Uh, He served in Washington in the early 1990s uh, and then headed over to China, where he was the China correspondent from 1994 to 2000. Uh, He's been back and forth uh, between Asia, United States and London. Uh, But he and by the way, he was the Tokyo bureau chief uh, from 2005 to 2009. He then was the founding author of the Banyan column on Asian affairs before going back to London in 2010, and yet again is in Hong Kong, where he writes Banyan. So, Dom, welcome to the Pacific
2: Century. It's great to be with you, Misha and John.
1: Well, we're we're thrilled to have you here, um, as you can imagine Uh, To the extent that Americans are looking at foreign affairs, and they are. uh, Asia is at the top of the list. And this week, probably at the top of the top of that list is Myanmar. Uh, All of a sudden, you have a new administration in the US, the Biden administration, Uh, within a week. They face their first crisis, which is the coup in Myanmar, and I know you've been focusing a lot on that. It's not something we've talked about yet, so we really wanted to get your perspective from being out in the region. Can you tell us what's going on, uh, what what it means, why it's important, why should anyone in Washington, with all the other problems, pay attention to Myanmar?
2: Yeah, well, it was there was there was certainly no honeymoon for for President Biden and his his administration. Um, I think that the coup took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, And the reason for that is that, you know, in so many ways, uh, Myanmar's army, the Tatmadaw, as it's it's often called, has been calling the shots for a very long time. It wrote the constitution in 2008 that guaranteed its army-backed party 25% of the seats in parliament. Um, It guaranteed uh, crucial ministerial portfolios, uh, including defence, um, you know, as being choices that the army would make, and in effect, uh, the army chief appoints his own boss, the defence minister. Um, and this was all part of uh, what the uh, the army, which had ruled Myanmar since 1962, uh, called a roadmap to democracy, but also importantly, a a, a, disciplined, a disciplined, flourishing democracy. It all seemed to be going the army's the army's way. So the surprise um, I think was pretty intense that it launched such an old-fashioned coup and I think we're all trying to work out quite what the reasons are, quite what the balance is between the institutional desires of the army to take back power are and how that balance squares with personal ambition particularly of the army chief General Min Ang Leng. Um, so, but it's, but it's, you know, what, what is clear is that um, since the election in Myanmar on November the 8th which was won overwhelmingly by Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD National League for Democracy the army has been very discomforted and it was really only after the election uh, that these rumblings started to be heard uh, when uh, our senior officers would for instance not discount the possibility uh, of a coup what what may have happened and and I stress that this is really just a conditional understanding, is, is that General Min Ong Leng, he was due to retire uh, at the age of 65 uh, in the middle of this year. And he may well have fancied his chances of being president. Of course, Aung San Suu Kyi is not president because the constitution also uh, bars her from being so. Through a, uh, through a provision that was specifically written for her, um, uh, disallowing uh, any president who had uh, offspring with foreign passports. She, she has boys who, uh, who have British passports. It may be that the, that the general thought that he could become president. He clearly was surprised that the army-backed party, the USDP, uh, did so poorly uh, in the election. It was a landslide for the NLD. Which won over eighty-three percent of the seats, and and that even with the army back twenty-five percent as the number of seats in 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 the parliament, that wasn't enough. Uh, wasn't going to be enough for uh, General Ming Ang Ling to. Uh, to, to make a bid for the presidency. So the next best thing, launch an old-fashioned coup. So,
1: Dom, let me, let me ask you, first of all, one thing you mentioned I found very interesting, that the army chief essentially appointed his, his own boss, the defense minister. That was actually a fatal flaw in the Meiji Constitution in Japan, in Imperial Japan, which, of course, ultimately in the 1930s led to great instability because the army could withdraw its, its support for a defense minister and cause the collapse of a cabinet. Uh, and ultimately, they went down the same roads, essentially of coups, um, there's a lot. To, there's a lot to talk about, and, and I know John wants to jump in. I may, I may, may, leave it to John to ask about what the Biden administration is doing. They made some announcements. Let me, let me ask you because I think it's important to get the context. Um, of course, Aung San Su Chi herself has had. Issues related to democratic governance, genocide against the Rohingya. It's not that what we have here is is simply a you know a, a uh, you know a reactionary army against you know the sort of pure white driven snow of a democratic government. I mean, this has been a very Complicated and contested democratic transition. Can you talk a little bit uh, about that as as well? Because people in America hear, you know, coup and they think, well, they're just overthrowing a, a, a purely democratic government. But but uh, Aung San Su Kyi herself has had some uh, less than democratic tendencies, I guess we could put
2: it. That, that's absolutely right. And she, and she is, is less pure than the driven snow, for, for sure. Highly contested. Um, the army was prepared to start to cede power uh, around uh, the late 2000s. Um, in 2011, uh, under President Ten Sen, um, who was uh, uh, an ex army man, um, elections were held which the NLD boycotted. But the NLD, uh, uh, under Aung San Suu Kyi, did agree uh, to contest the 2015 elections, um, which uh, she and her party uh, one again, in a landslide, but less so than last last November. Um, now, one thing that um, uh, annoyed the army was that uh, she appointed herself or had herself appointed uh, to a new post, a state councillor, which was, in effect, above the president. Um, and that irked the, the army. Um, the rivalry between uh, General uh, Ming-ang Lin and on uh, 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 San Suu Kyi goes back a long way. In, in some ways, in many ways, She's uh, she she's imperious like a, like like a general. Um, she is, of course, the daughter of Myanmar's founding father, uh, General Aung San, uh, and and so in some ways, I, I think that you know, whilst there was rivalry, there was also um, a, a, a confluence of of uh, views about how uh, Myanmar should be run, and and above all, the army is. Um, is central to keeping the state together. That is sort of part of the national myth. The army itself sees um, itself as the protector of the state um, in in ways that very few other countries do. Um, Thailand is certainly one, Pakistan is another. Um, Your your parallel with Meiji Japan is is fascinating. Um, But I I would say the role of the army in, in Myanmar is sort of like um, the, you know, the Meiji uh, Army on steroids. It really, really sees itself as having a, 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 a central um, role in keeping the country together. And bear in mind that the army has not had a single year of peace since the Japanese bombed Rangoon in December 1941. There are a dozen insurgencies uh, in the in the borderlands and fringes of of, of the country, um, immense and immensely complicated ethnic. Uh, conflicts. The uh, the army has been fighting these conflicts for decades. Um, it's uh, it's not necessarily battle weary. It's had a sort of es- esprit de corps which um, has been honed over these these decades, and it's also honed a very very um, strong but also troubling world view um, uh, uh, about um, about the army's uh, part in in the state. And, and in ma- in many ways, Ong uh, San Suu Kyi's view is not that different uh, and she she uh, in fact defended the army um uh, over its ethnic cleansing of rohingyas a million rohingyas now displaced uh, in, in bangladesh uh, and elsewhere but again just to go come back to that the sense of surprise you know given that she had the army's back um, it, it still came as a as a shock that this this coup and this very old-fashioned coup uh, unrolled as it did so what uh dominic thanks for joining us and um
0: let me ask, uh, just to follow on Misha's questions, uh, what can the United States or Great Britain or European nations uh, do about any of this? Um, is it, given what you just said about how important the military is in the state, is there anything really that the Western countries can do to try to reduce that and restore civilian government? Or is it really, no matter what kind of sanctions we impose, uh, this is not going to change uh,
2: you know, change the state of affairs in Burma? Well, it, it's, it, it's an immensely uh, tough question, John. It's, it's, um, and, and it's almost unanswerable because it's very, very hard to know what happens next. There is, of course, a history of two decades of sanctions placed upon the Burmese uh, military. Um, now, the usual argument is that those sanctions um, didn't work, that the uh, army carried on uh, brutally putting, putting down uh, popular uprisings, uh, certainly in 1988 and again in 2007, the Saffron Revolution, <clears throat> that the army um, didn't seem to mind sanctions, was quite happy running its huge conglomerates, its smuggling rackets, its jade, timber, drugs rackets, um, even doing uh, commercial deals with uh, the ethnic armies that it was fighting. Um, but I don't think that sanctions were wholly useless uh, up until uh, the late 2000s. I I think that um, it gradually became clear to the generals uh, that they had run their country into an economic dead end. I think it was probably um, an immense loss of face when they met their uh, counterparts at ASEAN summits, the the Southeast Asian 10-nation grouping Uh, And and I think they, they, you know, they they were aware that they were seen as the the poor cousins, um, you know, the generals not able to to travel to the West and so forth. I think at the margin, therefore, um, sanctions were noticed and did did have some effect. My concern with them, though, is that the biggest victims of the sanctions uh, were the very poorest in a very uh, unequal society. Total isolation of Myanmar now, I think, is not or should not be an option for the US uh, and its partners. Uh, And I don't think it will be, Um, partly uh, because um, that would probably entrench the military. Uh, It would certainly push uh, Myanmar um, closer into or further into China's arms. And China already has quite an immense economic um, and political sway in um, in Myanmar. That's not to say that uh, that China is, uh, is, is happy with the coup. I'm sure it's not, but it has considerable investments in the country, crucial investments for China, um, and it will do what it can to protect those investments and to protect its influence. So I, I, I think that engagement of some sort has to take place, and it's going to be very hard. Um, the, the great superpower of New Zealand, I think, st- struck it just about right by um, by um, forbidding uh, Burmese generals from travelling to New Zealand, um, imposing some sanctions, but still keeping the door open for dialogue. Uh, my feeling is that the Biden administration um, will not cut all ties and will uh, attempt to put pressure uh, on, on the generals, um, whether also... Um, the administration can keep in touch with the democratic camp um, remains remains to be seen. But, yeah, very hard, John. You mentioned, well, you mentioned um,
0: Thailand and uh, there are other countries which are, uh, you know, they're not, you know, the kind of robust Western democracies we might like, but they are farther along uh, than, you know, Myanmar is. is. Are there certain things that uh, the countries in the West can do to sort of move? Help encourage at least the military or the uh, people in Myanmar to take steps towards something that would look like a Thailand or a Philippines or you know way down at the end of the other end of the spectrum you know
2: Taiwan Korea so on. Well, well, um, I, 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 i I mean, I would question the, the 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 premise that sort of going in the Thai direction is the right way to go. Yeah. Um, it was quite telling that the day before yesterday. The coup leader, uh, Minong Leng, uh, actually wrote to the Thai Prime Minister and former general, and indeed coup, coup leader himself, yeah. uh, General Prayut Chan Ocha, uh, and asked him for advice in how to instill a good democracy in the country. Um, so, if you're turning to General Prayut for advice <laughs> on democracy, um, you're probably turning to the wrong person, but you are turning to somebody who, who uh, does I- indeed you know, think like you. Um, and, and so, for the US, this is an immense problem because uh, President Biden and his team have understood the challenge that China poses to Asia. Uh, and it's a challenge you know, on several dimensions um, e- economic, um, strategic, um, uh, technological. But it's also a challenge of contesting political systems. And if The U.S. is to push back against a sort of spreading authoritarianism. At the very least, you need to engage with Southeast Asia. Uh, But Myanmar has now just uh, joined a whole bunch of other countries in Southeast Asia, the majority, that do not have free uh, or fair uh, elections. Uh, And so here comes a problem for an administration which has put human rights to a certain extent um, at the heart of its foreign policy, at the same time as acknowledging China's strategic uh, challenge, uh, the US sells arms to to Thailand, but that's you know that's a contentious move. Um, the the other countries sell arms to Myanmar at the moment, including increasingly Russia. Um, presumably, uh, that's not going to stop. Um, but again, how how the US pushes back, it'll be it will be a very very delicate affair because. Um, Push too hard on the sort of democratic front with uh, partners in Southeast Asia, and you start to uh, annoy them. I mean, bear in mind that General Prayut in Thailand has faced um, protests of the kind that we're now seeing in Myanmar, uh, and um, that's not—they're um, not uncommon, and they have—they have parallels with the protests that you know we've seen here in. In Hong Kong, much of the symbolism, for instance, is being employed, you know, the three-figured salutes from the Hunger Games and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so now a lot of leaders in Southeast Asia are looking at their, um, at their populaces and are, are very suspicious of them and their intentions in terms of challenging their monopoly on power.
1: Dom, it's Misha again. So um, interestingly, you, you talked about that, that tension that I think all administrations in the U.S. have, which is between sort of a more realist approach and the the idealist approach of human rights and the readouts that came out of the first conversations that Secretary of State Blinken had with his counterparts in uh, Thailand and both the Philippines and Thailand indicated that he, they actually did not bring up human rights issues. And, of course, the, the Obama administration has some very uh, – the Obama administration, of which you know everyone in the Biden administration served, has some very bad memories of uh, coming a cropper of, of – uh, of Philippines because of these these human rights issues. So they are uh, clearly going to have to walk a fine line. Um, what I'd like to ask you before, we do want to ask you about the rest of Asia and move to that. But before we, we leave uh, Myanmar... Um, the, uh, the the president talked about today he, when he was talking about, as, as he called it, Burma and the sanctions he put on, which was a billion dollars on the uh, on the military and said there will be more to come. Um, it's in the context, of course, of these these uh, uh, demonstrations that you've mentioned, knowing the country, how worried are you uh, that there could be bloodshed, that we could get to some type of, of real societal clash, you know, of the type, quite frankly, we saw
2: in Thailand over the past years uh, that were leading up to and after coups. Yeah, Misha, I'm very worried. Uh, in, in Thailand, the generals have faced, uh, uh, or at least the military-backed government, has faced a challenge from younger Thais who've been very adept at using social media, at coming together um, to r- really embarrass, well, not just the generals, but also uh, the royal family uh, and the king who, who leads a, a bizarre and extravagant uh, lifestyle. Um, but that's, you know, that's mainly youngsters. And, uh, I mean, they're, they're highly... Uh, literate, um, uh, they're highly engaged and committed, but it's a generational thing. In Myanmar, it's different. The people who've been coming out on the street are not just students. Even though students have traditionally uh, often led uh, protests against uh, the previous junta's, um, it's people of all uh, generations. And however, you know, flawed we may think Aung San Suu Kyi is, uh, particularly with regard to. Um, her stand on the Rohingyas um, she is immensely popular and um on the other side um, are the security forces who uh, at the moment have been somewhat restrained but um but if you if you look on the streets it's not the army that is yet on the front line it's um first of all unarmed police um then it's police you know with water cannon uh, and then uh And then it's, you know, police with shotguns. Um, There have been a a couple of uh, incidents of of violence perpetrated by the security forces, um, but uh, but very little bloodshed so far. However, if the protests continue, I have no doubt that uh, the army will step in. And uh, as I say, it's an army that's been hardened. Uh, in fighting uh, ethnic uh, conflicts. And um, my feeling is that any kind of split in the army, uh, discomfort that, uh, General ming um, you know, uh, seeking personal ambition, I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, the army sticks together. It's uh, got a, an extraordinary sort of kind of caste solidarity amongst its officers uh, and its foot soldiers uh, have been pretty brutalised. Um, I fear that if called upon, uh, they will fire, and this could indeed get very bloody
1: well clearly uh we 're going to be watching everyone will be watching it'll be a uh, uh an ongoing crisis for the Biden administration, but there are some other things we 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 want to get your view on since since you 're out there um and and maybe we can move to um something that has the potential for for almost just as much disruption, uh, which is the new uh, rules that China uh, announced recently that give its Coast Guard uh, the right to use lethal force, to use weapons to enforce Chinese claims. Uh, And in fact, what we've seen uh, repeated incursions into the Senkakus in recent days uh, with armed uh, armed patrol vessels uh, on the part of the Chinese. Um, clearly, it was something that caused the Philippines to announce a, um, uh, a, a basically make a, uh, not a demarche, but a, a complaint to the Chinese about it. And the U.S. in response talked about uh, protecting uh, both Japan and, and the Philippines. Um, how, w- What? why would the Chinese do this now? And, and how significant do you think this is? How much does it have the potential um, to raise tensions or or potentially lead to an accident where we could find an armed encounter happening on the seas in the South China Sea or East China Sea?
2: Yeah, well, I have to say that one, one of the uh, you know many prices of this pandemic is that I haven't been able to get around the region's capitals to speak in particular to defence and security types uh, to get their view on this. But my sense is that this new Coast Guard law, um, which China seems to have sort of snuck in whilst everybody's attention is uh, absorbed elsewhere, not, not least in the pandemic um, and uh, in the u s election uh, that this is you know quite a significant um, uh, new law and new development um, of course chi- china 's sort of increasing uh, assertiveness in the South China Sea and the East China Sea has for a long time been carried out first and foremost by its coast guard, not by its navy, and this um, it, it, you know, in a way, has given it cover uh, to increase its control, to claim uh, territory, to assert maritime claims in, in, in ways that seem less threatening um, and less aggressive than using um, the PLA Navy. But of course, as, as you as, as you know better than I, uh, the, the kinds of vessels that China has been using have uh, increasingly resembled warships. Uh, and now this new Coast Guard law uh, seems in effect to codify the Coast Guard as a kind of uh, sort of sub-navy. Um, the question is what it intends to, to 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 do now. And I think we have to assume that certainly under Xi Jinping with, you know, with, with quite sizable ambitions um, – China will continue uh, to assert and possibly in- increasingly assert um, its presence in the South China Sea, and will uh, continue to harass uh, Japan around the Senkaku Islands. And the Japanese government does report heightened activity in recent in, in recent months. So, well, a, a critical well, I just want to jump in. What what can be done in the South China Sea? Uh, you know, what? Well, well, yeah, so, I so, think so, which yeah, is I think I you're mean, about think, to I get think, to
0: think,
2: <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, so it's really, I think that's where the US and its allies comes in. Yeah. And, and that, it's, a, it's a critical question um, um, because um, the, the challenge will be to enforce red lines that China must not cross. Mm. And, and um, there are complications uh, amongst America's friends and partners uh, in Asia over American behaviour and how to deal with China. Um, And and one is that, you know, in the South China Sea, although a number of states have contested claims with China, uh, none of them are keen openly to antagonise China over this. Uh, And China's sort of salami-slicing approach um, is also designed um, not to lead to sort of outright uh, confrontation. Um, But at the same time... None of these countries want to be caught in the middle of a clash between China and the US. So, for instance, um, although nearly every capital cheered um, the increased freedom of navigation exercises that the US Navy conducted uh, under President Trump, very few of them, you know, will, um, do them will themselves. publicly, will publicly <laughs> yeah. praise them or, do them, or do them, yeah. particularly do them themselves. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Um, and and one but but you know at the same time one of the concerns that um, diplomats and others have have voiced to me is um, that the uh, new Biden administration will more resemble uh, maybe President Obama's second term in which um, red lines were set by President Obama, uh, particularly for instance around the Scarborough Shoal uh, that is uh, that is uh, contested between the Philippines and um, and China. Uh, and the with red lines were then crossed, uh, and the U.S. then did nothing about it. So to answer you, there's a long way of answering your question, John. But but I mean, it's I think it's really very important now for the new administration to to make very clear to to China what are the red lines in the region, uh, and uh, and um, yes, obviously territorial red lines are. The most obvious and, and, and critical ones, um, but there are others too, including, for instance, you know, cyber attacks on on on. on so the, on a, the red lines sometimes. question is, you
1: know, it's it's one that bedevils uh, American presidents. You know, you want to seem credible, and yet, of course, you never really want to have to be called on it. Uh, one other approach that the administration early on, of course, let's remember, we're only in the second week here. So, you know, we can't uh, it's not like we've got, uh, you know, months and months, if not years of, of uh, track record. Um, but in a, uh, a comment, I think it was in the first week, the press secretary, Jem Saki. Uh, essentially, said that the the administration was going to uh, take a a uh, a stance of patience or strategic patience towards China. Now, that was a phrase that was used, of course, by the Obama administration in referring to North Korea and um, uh, really not uh, an extraordinary amount of engagement with North Korea. The administration is is coming off of uh, you know the Trump. Uh, approach to China, which in many ways, well, not entirely, but in many ways, upended forty years of U.S.-China relations. Um, what is the sense? I mean, you asked the question of, of what the the, um, the nations in the region are are thinking, but what is what is the sense uh, of the balance that oh, that Biden has to strike? With China, do they want to see a continuation of, of pressure you mentioned? Freedom of navigation operations, but there was a lot more, and you've just mentioned cyber. But there's influence campaigns. Uh, there's the question of of um, high, you know, top end technologies and the like. What do they want to see the
2: U.S. do? Well, they, they, they don't want the kind of strategic patience that um, that, that they divined under President Obama. They don't want um, open conflict, uh, or they don 't want to be forced to, to to take sides, but they're very aware that with the necessary and for them often highly desirable economic engagement with China uh, come some negative uh, uh, elements, particularly since Xi Jinping came to came to power uh, marking a much more assertive china, and um, they want to be able to um, To to balance, um, and they want to be able to hedge. And for that, they absolutely need the US fully committed and engaged uh, in the region. They also don't want the kind of uh, Trumpian chaos, which, as many people I've talked to um, see it, the, the, the analysis of the China challenge was broadly correct. And it's interesting that the Biden administration has, in effect, carried on that an a, a analysis that it's no longer strategic um, engagement, but, the, the, but that it's tr- strategic competition. Um, but they don't think that it's. Uh, they don't want to see a manichean contest, um, and and they don't think there's any point in sort of tweaking China's nose unnecessarily, um, which they certainly feel about Secretary of State Pompeo's uh, you know, latest tours, his last tours around the region, when in effect um, he was attempting to get other countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, on board uh, in demonizing uh, China and, um, and the Communist Party. Um, the relief, I think, has been felt uh, everywhere that the Biden administration is not that. Um, as an advisor to uh, Prime Minister Suga of Japan uh, said to me, said, said it's great that Washington uh, is back. And by that, he meant all the the, you know, the experts. Uh, whom President Biden gives value to you know, in a way that trump didn 't he disdained um, expertise um, but the, but his concern this advisor and those of uh, others in the region um, is is uh, is whether America itself is back uh, and uh, yes, the whole region wants to see a more engaged America, but the whole region is also questioning whether that will happen uh, uh, you know a country that um, has been uh, weakened uh, or at least self-absorbed both by its politics and by the pandemic um, that has lost confidence over its um, economic strength. Um, is, this a, is this the kind of power that can recommit and re-engage? The rhetoric is good. Um, the assurances have been welcome, um, but the US hasn't yet been put to the test under President Biden. Uh,
1: Dom, just like to ask you a few more uh, questions. Um, One uh, is... Uh, about actually a continuation potentially of trump policy, uh, which is the quad uh, and and the administration has announced that in several ways that they 're going to continue it that they actually are trying to schedule a meeting. This was something that Trump revitalized in two thousand and seventeen uh, so really his first year in office haven 't hasn 't done an enormous amount, but it's it 's there, and Japan seems committed to it Australia. Uh, and India. Um, how far do you think the Quad will go? How far do you think it should go? What type of role should it play in, in, in fact, doing the types of things that you mentioned some of the nations in the region want to see, which is, is not create a crisis, but certainly stand up for the norms and the rules and, and uh, the, the cooperative
2: behaviors? I think it could and should go uh, further. Um, and I think something has changed in, in recent months. Um, Australia's been in the doghouse, but then it was always kind of committed to the, to, to the Quad, or it has been in recent years. Japan is committed, although it's uh, always reluctant um, uh, directly to confront China on things, unless uh, there are security, territorial issues concerned, like the Senkakus. Um, but the, the big question mark was always India. Uh, now, the four foreign ministers met in Tokyo last October, I think, um, and um, the other countries say they detected a change of tone um, on India's part, and that's part because, in part, because of the high-altitude uh, brawl, the low-tech but deadly brawl um, that uh, took place along the uh, Sino-Indian border. Um, <clears throat> India has always been, you know, reluctant to join alliances. It's not going to uh, to join soon, but it may prove to be a more cooperative member. The, the Quad, though, is. Is only those four countries, and it's almost entirely security driven and based. There aren't any other dimensions to it, economic, not really diplomatic. Uh, and so, one question is, you know, whether it needs more more dimensions, it needs more richness and, and texture, or whether it's purely going to be a security defense type thing. Um, another question, and it's something that um, I know the administration. Um, is discussing is how to bring in other countries sort of around um, the sort of perimeter of the quad structure, um, how to get defence engagement across the Indo-Pacific region. And administration officials argue that it's not necessarily uh, a hugely expensive um, exercise, that it's not only to do with, you know, with hardware and uh, large numbers of troops and uh, joint Military exercises, uh, but it's helping other countries with uh, small and not always very noticeable stuff like, you know, in surveillance, intelligence gathering, uh, radar, uh, and the like. So I, I'd say there's a future for the Quad because um, there's an increasing uh, understanding of the China challenge. But I think it's a future that has to be um, more sophisticated, more. Uh, multidimensional and involving uh, uh, other countries. In four, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you
1: think there's a future. We really uh, appreciate that. We're actually going to be starting a project on the quad uh, at Hoover uh, with uh, former Secretary of Defense Mattis, uh, former uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Joe Felter, myself, uh, we're going to be looking at, in fact, we're, we're already uh, working on scheduling uh, some of the track 1.5 meetings and and trying to to do exactly, in fact, what you mentioned, uh, which is try to figure out how do you make this beyond just the, the security military aspect to these other elements of of norms and institutions and, and rule building and the types of help that a lot of countries need. So so it's, it's great to hear you say that, and we'll certainly um, keep pushing at it from our end. So Dom, last question. Uh, You mentioned that you haven't been able to travel. None of us really have. Uh, But there is one place that you are where you don't have to travel that much, which is one of the hot spots right now. Uh, The the Berlin of the 21st century, perhaps, and that is Hong Kong. What's going on? We've talked about it a little bit, but you're there. You live there, but you're also one of the most perceptive observers uh, of Asia in the world, writing about it regularly. How bad is it? Is this the end of Hong Kong as we've known it? If you haven't visited now, is it too late? Tell us really what what we need to know about what's happened over the past year.
2: Well, well, I'll 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 try. Um, it's I mean, uh, my mood has uh, swung up and down uh, about uh, Hong Kong's prospects uh, from deep gloom to, well, occasionally mild hope for for the long run, um, but certainly. You know, sitting here under Covid, uh, my my travel stopped in, in, in April. Before that, I was on the road the whole time and out of Hong Kong most of the time. Um, it has been dispiriting to see an open society shut down, uh, all in the name in particular of this national security law that was promulgated at the end of last June. Um, the effect has been rapid. It hasn't necessarily been visible in the sense that, you know, this is not like... Uh, Napidor or, or Yangon, with um, you know troops on street corners, you wouldn't necessarily notice uh, a major change. And in fact, you know, uh, outwardly you'd think, oh well, there's there's been less protest, less turmoil. Um, this is a contented city, um, but it's a, a city that's been quelled at at huge uh, cost. Uh, in effect, politics has been um, has been condemned and and outlawed. Now only a loyal opposition is allowed. Um, A friend of mine uh, started writing a book about Hong Kong uh, early last year, a year ago, uh, and she had many, many um, thoughtful people speaking to her about Hong Kong and its future. uh, When the law was promulgated, Every single one of the people she spoke to, dozens and dozens, said that uh, they couldn't afford to have their name published in this book, so she had to give up the project. Um, Many Hong Kong people, uh, activists, have have already uh, fled the territory for Taiwan, um, for Europe, the US, uh, Canada. Uh, But even non-political people, uh, non-political friends of mine, um, talk uh, about leaving or have left, uh, because uh, the kind of Hong Kong um, that China is now uh, trying to mold is not the kind of Hong Kong they want their children uh, to grow up in the administration well i mean it 's always been an administration that has uh, that is used to taking its orders from on high both when it was a British colony uh, and uh, and now under China, um, but it no longer has the um, it no longer has the 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 power to 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 claim that it has autonomous rights and to set a you know to to, to, to draw a line between what China can ask and what um, can, can be the, what the, uh, the the government in Hong Kong can do. The, the government the, the language is the interesting thing. Um, the, the, the senior officials, including Carrie Lam, the chief executive, have suddenly. Uh, adopted the wooden speak of Communist Party officials. They seem to have done this almost effort, effortlessly, um, and um, they, they now they you know, recite this wooden language. Um, anybody who criticises any aspect of uh, Hong Kong life, and I'm not, you know, talking um, just about um, you know the right to vote and so forth. If you criticise um, Hong Kong's appalling uh, waste recycling. Um, efforts, um, or its great inequalities. Uh, right outside my window this morning, just before we started our conversation, um, the, there was an 80-year-old. Um, he, he comes every morning and he works his way through the bins um, to take out anything um, that might be of value. Um, there, there, are, there are grandmothers who um, who collect cardboard off the sidewalks to, to, uh, to recycle. If you criticise um, the immense inequalities, um, then you're accused of playing politics. Uh, and, and my concern is that although, uh, Hong Kong is important to China as a financial center, ultimately, uh, China would not mind if Hong Kong became a second or third rate Chinese city. Well, Dom, that was, that's, that's fantastic, uh, fantastic insight from
1: inside the barricade, so to speak, uh, as well as everything else that you, that you mentioned, John.
0: Well, Dominic, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us. This has been a Great conversation, a great insight into what's going on in the region, and I hope uh, at the very least uh, you'll come back and join us. And uh, we're looking forward to your next book. We need to get to talk about your, you know, your, your this interesting book that you wrote about traveling down this great river. So, uh, you know, maybe we'll have you back to talk about
2: uh, that as well. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real treat. It's been a real pleasure for me and, 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 and a treat for me. Thank you very much indeed, Misha and John, for, for having me on, on your program.
1: Thanks so much, Tom. Really great to be with
2: you. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye.
0: This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, And to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.